Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Hot Shot Wake Up. On today's show, we have a fantastic guest for you, Jay Gilmore. We have a great, great conversation that covers all sorts of things. Some of you may know her from 10 and 18. This is the social media site YouTube as well, where she tries to help family members, friends, and significant others of firefighters kind of understand the terminology and other things that take place while we're out and about, but as well is a firefighter and has done many, many things in the wildfire world. Like many of us, she didn't start immediately out the gate into wildfire. Started in photography, had a bunch of endeavors there, and she'll get into that as we get into the episode, but ended up in the Southwest. And during an internship, she was asked to support some of the major wildfires that were taking place down there. Ultimately, she got into the PIO or public information officer realm, then jumped into fire investigating, and now does a lot of really good work with prevention efforts and traveling around the nation uh, doing those sorts of things. We cover all sorts of topics, whether it's being a PIO, being a fire investigator, the prevention work that's being done, talking to the public, what that's like, going to gun ranges and having conversations with folks, all the way to training for a marathon, uh, the difficulties and different realities of being a woman in the wildfire world, and all sorts of other things. It's a great conversation. I'm very thankful that she was willing to sit down and do this with me, so I really hope you enjoy. I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, the Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. I have traveled, traveled, traveled. Jay, this is Tim. Hey, Tim. How are you? I'm well. I just got back from the gym. I got a blizzard outside. and uh, <laughs> But other than that, I'm good. I'm caffeinated and uh, I'm feeling good. How are you? Well, you're you're one over on me. I'm not yet caffeinated, but oh no, the day's halfway through. <laughs> no, I try to save mine for that afternoon slump. <laughs> nice. Yeah, but we. I also had my got my run in this morning against all the blizzard snow. We, I mean, the blizzard wind. We haven't gotten the snow yet. Okay. Um, but man, it was it was a frosty run for sure. Where where are you? <laughs> I'm in Colorado. Okay. Yeah. So we're, uh, we just got some light snow on Monday and we're expecting some more, I think tonight. So the front is moving forward and yeah, it was, uh, I thought if I don't get it in early, early in the day, I'm not going to get it in at all. So facts, it's just the way (laughs) it is. Yeah. It's just the way it is. I'm currently training for a marathon in May. So I, you know, training is a little bit, um, time sensitive at this point. Do you have a whole like plan laid out? I do. Um, and it, it's just generic and I kind of tweak it as I go along. Um, body mechanics, bodybuilding, all of that nutrition and things like that is kind of a personal hobby. And so I will start with a plan and, and tweak it as I go along and running is definitely something 
new to me. I've never trained for a marathon before. So um, I think I've tweaked this plan a handful of times so far. And I've, I'm eight weeks into it so far. Okay. You're, you're a chunk into it. Yeah. Well, before, well, for- before we <laughs> dive into your background and all that, I just have to say this marathons scare me. They scare mm-hmm. me. <laughs> that's like, mm-hmm. that's a big thing. Yeah. It was not part of my original plan. Um, I, I kind of have this personal, uh, thing every year I pick a challenge, something that either pushes me out of my comfort zone or, uh, is something that I don't never considered I could do. Um, in 2017, I did a half marathon and I was really pleased with myself that I actually did that. And after that race, I said, "Hmm, I think a half marathon is good. I don't really need anything further. (laughs) That's how I feel. I've ran halves and just, just on my own, you know, I'll break off 13 and a half miles or whatever. But afterwards, I'm like, why would I ever run a full marathon? Right, exactly. Oh, excuse me. Um, that's exactly how I felt. Like, it's not fun at that point anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's a challenge. You know? it's, it's a challenge. <laughs> but this year, my partner, um, he was like, you know, we want to keep ourselves fit over the winter. And you always want to pick a challenge every year. So let's pick a marathon and we'll train together. Very nice. And I was like, oh, okay, twist my arm. <laughs> <laughs> Where is it at? Is it at least like a nice scenic marathon somewhere? I hope so. Uh, it's going to be up in the um, canyon uh, here close to my home. And so I'm, I'm thinking that it'll be nice, but it's still going to be May, dude. So yeah. I could be running in the snow for all I know. Yeah, you sure could. <laughs> <laughs> At that point, I'm really going to be guessing my san- uh, guessing about my sanity. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe the snow will make you forget about the actual mileage. Right? Yeah. Something else to, some other pain to concentrate on. Yeah. <laughs> no, nah, but I'm looking forward to it. The, it's the training part that I enjoy. It's that um, real uh, dread and overcoming that dread and pain and being consistent and learning that there's a, there's a lot that comes out of consistency and determination. Consistency and, is key. And I tell people that all the time. They're like, Hey man, how did you get to like your fitness goals and all that sort of thing? What, and for me, it's two things. It's diet and consistency. And if you're, if you miss one of those, it's so hard to see the progress that you want, but in the training, true. like you're talking about the fun part about training is if you do start seeing that progress, it's actually really cool. Yeah. Well, and I think the progress part sneaks up on you as well. Yeah. And not to, not to tout the soapbox that seems to be out there, but there is this kind of instant gratification that a lot of us yearn for Mm -hmm. and physical fitness is, is just not going to, that's just not how it works. You have to stay consistent and over time you see improvement and unfortunately the improvement is in increments. And so you, you don't notice it. Until one day you're training for a marathon and you're like, oh, yeah, you know, I remember when I used to not be able to run for 60 seconds without heavy breathing. Yeah. <laughs> and that's when you get the payoff, when you start seeing the progress. And, yep. and like you're saying, there's, I think the majority of folks are instant gratification minded people. And whether that's culture that's driven that or if you want to go all the way back genealogically and be like, you know, it came that way. But there's the argument that our culture is kind of pushing for that instant gratification 
fix, that dopamine dump that everybody's chasing. But if you stick with it, which is that consistency, it it feels good when you notice it. It does. If if you're set up to be that that kind of person. I think the instant gratification may just be out of habit these days. I mean, look at look at um our streaming platforms. Mm-hmm. You know, you you no longer have to wait until Monday evening at six o'clock to watch your favorite show. You know, you can stream the whole season yep. all, all in one go. And it's just convenient. It's there and and why not? It brings you pleasure. It's you don't have anything else going on. So it's, you know, just kind of out of habit. And if you're set up for me, I I feel like I, I kind of have an OCD tendency. Mm-hmm. And so I just can't tread water for very long, which is, you know, it could be a positive and a negative, but <laughs> just I'm just gonna, you know, float the positive vibes here. Um yeah. <laughs> that it, because I, I I'm not able to tread tread the same water for so long, I I need that that new um, challenge that something that pushes me out of my comfort zone or something that's interesting that I I never really thought to look into before you know um, just to to not become stale. I yeah, guess is, sure. a, is a good way to put it. Yeah. And that's just me. That's how I'm built there. Are, you know, I would say a couple of generations ago, you know, my grandmother was in the same job for 40 years uh, and that was stable for her. It was the, the way that um, she designed her life and she, that's just, that's how you did it. That's what you did. And I don't think she was any less happy for it. Um, but I'm, I'm definitely built differently than that. I need that challenge and something new to expand my skill set or expand my knowledge base, you know? Absolutely. Well, let's jump into that. So in watching some of the work that you've done, which is this 10 and 18 project or channel that, that you've, that you've created. And I think it's great in one of them, you're talking about how you made that switch. So you were just saying your grandmother, she, she, right. Your grandmother, she found this groove and she stuck with it for 40 years, but you went to school photography was a big thing for you. Is that correct? Yes. I was a photographer for 10 years. Yeah. So you started there and, but then a time came where you're like, Hey, I'm transitioning out of what I know. And I'm sure you loved it, but I know a lot of people who are artists and are in that field, they they do it because they love it as well. Is how did that transition happen? Why did you make that transition? And um, you know, even with the interview with your father, he was like, oh, we were, we were a little concerned, but we we're supportive of all this. But can you just start with that transition, you know, out of photography into the wildfire world? Yeah. You know, I became a photographer at a young age and entered that business. Um, when it was, I, I think that creative part of the the business was really blooming and we were transitioning from you know, old school film into digital. And there were a lot of computer programs that enhanced what we were doing. And it was just a fun time. Um, But I don't think that I was really prepared um, mentally for a long-term career. And looking back, (laughs) looking back, I, I, you know, I wish I had been a little bit better prepared, but I got to a point I had worked for a company for many years and they were talking to me about, um, you know, taking on a partnership and, 
uh, moving in that direction with their company. Mm -hmm. And as much as I hate to admit it, it was really a decision out of fear base. Um, I, I wasn't ready for that. I didn't see myself owning my own business and um, taking on all that comes with a photography business. Um, and so I, I thought, you know, on the weekends I was, um, I was helping to teach uh, these outdoor education courses to children in at the local nature center. Um, I had an, an interest in teaching even when I was in high school. And so in North Carolina, where I grew up, you can get your outdoor education certification through the state. It's quite a process. But I had done that and I really enjoyed it. And so on the weekends, I was helping out at the nature centers and I thought, you know what, I really, really enjoy this. And I think I'd like to go back to school so that I could become a full-time teacher um, and and move into that kind of career path instead. So I did that. I went back, I got my bachelor's, um, absolutely loved it and had applied for an internship at the end of my um, bachelor's career. Uh, which happened to be with the Forest Service. Okay. And so I started working with the Forest Service just on happenstance and um, man really fell in love with uh, the Forest Service and fire. And And this was in an outdoor teaching role when you did take this internship? Yeah. So it was in the recreation department. They had a particular, they had a grant for a particular program in New Mexico um, called Respect the Rio. And so it was really geared towards um, teaching folks who are camping in the back, backwoods, Mm -hmm. um, how to camp around water, because water is such a precious resource in um, the mountains of New Mexico. And so it's stuff like, you know, people would park their car in the watershed or um, excuse me, in the um, in the river. And then, you know, you have oil and and road debris and all sorts of stuff that's washing into the rivers. You have um, anglers that are leaving their hooks and wires and mm-hmm. um, people who are defecating in the river and yeah. just, you know, a whole host of issues that come with camping around the river. And so they had, it was a short term program. They had asked, you know, for a seasonal position and I had applied and and they were happy to see my, um, my experience and my education. And so I spent the summer, um, in New Mexico doing that, but about two months into that seasonal program, we had the largest at the time, the largest wildfire in New Mexico's history, which is the Los Conchas. That was in 2011. Yeah. And man, they needed all hands on deck (laughs) at that time. It burnt, uh, overnight, it burnt like 44,000 acres, which at the time no one had ever heard of, or we were just barely using the term super Hanes at that time. Yeah. 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 Just a monster run for that time. Yes. Yeah. And so, um, luckily I had an AFMO that really saw my skill set, and he was like, let's get you going as a PIO and, um, get, get you into fire that way. And we really need the help and you're already out talking to the public. So I think that this would work really well with what you already have going on. And did you have 
initially the same feeling when that was proposed to you as the proposal of, hey, do you want to be a partner in this photography company? Was there any fear involved? Like, oh my gosh, I've just been asked to step up. I'm in front of the microphone and the podium now. What was your reaction to the ask? Yeah, that's, man, that's a, a great question. I, <laughs> You're totally right. I had no fear at all. This was that's exactly right? where I needed to be. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. It felt good. Yeah, exactly where I needed to be. It was wonderful. But at the same time, I, I felt guilt because anytime I needed to go to the line to get a photograph, um, to get information from the line, someone from operations had to be notified and find a firefighter to come and be with me as an escort on the line. Um, and I just felt at the time I was so new to fire and I just felt like, man, this guy, <laughs> this guy should be doing something else instead of holding my hand. And I'm taking him away from doing something that's really needed on this fire. Right. Yeah. And so at that, in that instance, um, I just decided the following year I was going to get, I was going for it. I was going to, um, do the full thing, get, get hired as a firefighter, you know, keep my training as a PIO. And that way I wouldn't have to have, you know, I wouldn't have I would be part of the team. I wouldn't be taken away from the team. Yeah. You wouldn't be issued a liaison everywhere you went. Exactly. So I transitioned from recreation um, the following summer. I worked as an AD because I I still worked for the USDA, but with a different department. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I worked as an AD, uh, got some time on the engine, got some time on a little hand crew. um, And then the following year, I was able to qualify and got hired as a seasonal engine um, uh, crew member. So that's kind of how I fell into it. I'm I'm sure that, or at least the the folks that I talk to, we all kind of fall into it with that same attitude of you just get hooked. Yeah. You know. Oh yeah. You automatically find a family. You automatically feel like you're contributing. You're part of the answer instead of part of the problem. And it's just it's a wonderful feeling to have. It's a great feeling. I, I sort of fell into it as well. I had, uh, my older brother was in it before I was, and it wasn't really anything that I had considered. Um, but you know, things happen and, uh, you get into that life. One of the things that I really enjoyed, like you said, you find a family, you, you, you get this feeling of, of accomplishment and you get hooked to it. The thing that I love is, the finished product. I always loved tying in and then turning around mm-hmm. and just being like, Oh my gosh, look what we just did. It's a great, great feeling. And it's, you know, it's, it's addicting. It's a good feeling. You've accomplished something. What I would consider great. Not a lot of people have put out that kind of work, labor, teamwork, uh, cohesion and adapted and overcome because you're, you're building highways, in the wilderness, your, you know, everything that we do out there. And yeah, it's, it's a good feeling when it's all, when it all comes together. It is. It's a feeling of satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah. Which who wouldn't want that? (laughs) Right. I feel satisfied. Like you don't, you don't hear people say that every day. Right. And it's a different kind of sleep at night when you've, when you've accomplished something like that over a period of days, that sleep is the best sleep. <laughs> yeah, it really is. 
deep sleep. One of my favorite things, just to go down a little tangent here, was every morning we got into the habit on on all the crews that I was on, I kind of forced it a little bit because I enjoyed that conversation, is when we used to wait in line in the morning in camp for breakfast, um, you would, or I would, ask people about their dreams because I knew people were sleeping so heavy and they were Mm. having these dreams. So I just loved that aspect. Like, what'd you dream about? And then it would become an activity throughout the day to, you know, like half comically and with humor, but also like trying to pick it apart is interpret other crew members dreams for them. And then we would, we would hash that around and I just, it was just (laughs) great. That sounds dangerous. Well, it was, it was very dangerous. Uh, but it was entertaining and, uh, it was fun. And, and after like a month of first introducing it, you you would be approached and be like, yo, this is what I dreamed about. What does it mean? It's like, oh, okay, cool. (laughs) But yeah, the sleep is different. So as a PIO, can you tell me what are the largest struggles you would say in that role that you played? Yeah. PIO, I think is of my fire career. That's the longest running, um, thread through, through my fire career. Um, and I would say PIO in and of itself is another team mindset, um, which is really awesome. And I I seem to be drawn to those aspects of, of what we do. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think, uh, if you're specifically asking about struggles, the I think the the biggest thing that comes to mind when you talk about the PIO shop itself is that within that team setting, and I mean teamwork, not just like incident management teams, but within that team setting, PIOs are are valued. Um, lots of lots of people understand the value of of having that liaison between what's going on on the fire. And then what the public is receiving. Yep. Um, but when you get down to the nitty gritty, let's say at the district level, you um, get a little bit more pushback about, well, how how necessary is that PIO assignment? Not necessarily how valuable is a PIO, but just the going on the assignment and, and supporting the network of, of IMTs that are out there. And is um, that is that a hesitation of we don't want the extra exposure on this incident or this incident isn't prominent enough to to deserve that, I guess? Like why is there pushback in that area? I, you know, I'd love to say that it's a bigger picture as in of of that kind of thing. Like we were concerned about exposure. Um, but in my experience, and, and I'd really like to highlight that because everyone has a different experience. Um, but in, in my experience, it comes more down to the, um, it has to look fair for all. And so if you have like a PIO is a single resource that goes out. It's not a crew of folks, right? It's not, mm-hmm. um, in a crew rotation per se. And so when there's this need for all of these public information officers to go out to these assignments, 
well, you know, the, the engine on district hasn't been out yet, or the crew on the district hasn't been out yet. And so, you know, you've already been out on a PIO assignment. It really looks bad if, you know, we're not spreading the quote unquote wealth, if you will. Yeah. Um, uh, which, that's, uh, that's crazy to me. Right. <laughs> yeah, it, to me, very, that's crazy. It is. It's very difficult. I, I you understand know, where they're coming from, right? Right. Because exactly. like you said, the fairness, the fairness game that's played, but that's just silly. It's a difficult position to be in because like you said, I totally understand that. Um, yeah, there, yep. you know, there's a need for all resources. And if a particular forest is in drawdown and we need resources on the forest, that we we need resources on the forest. That's that's the way that's the way it works. That's why we are district personnel, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you are in a time every year, we get to a point where there's just not enough resources to go around. Um, and so you you get these teams that are like, hey, <laughs> like we we have we don't even have a PIO right now. We yeah. we you know, how about virtual? Could you possibly support us virtually? Which I, I did that one year. Um, I tried to, uh, balance, you know, supporting an, an incident a couple of States away virtually as best I could, and then still maintaining my, my district responsibilities. Um, and it was the hardest assignment that I had been on it. You just, there's a reason why when you're on assignment, you're assigned to that particular fire. Because you you can't do more than that. You just get stretched too thin. Um, yeah, you're, and, bouncing, you know, you're bouncing back and forth. Right. When yeah. it's an IA, it's the first 24, 48-hour period. It's kind of expected. You know, We're, We don't have things set in place. But when you're an extended attack and you're talking about a 14-day assignment, you, you as one person cannot do that. Well, so. it, it sounds... It, and was that proposed because you couldn't physically be there or was this, was this a COVID thing or was this like, Hey, let's just try this. We need you, but we can't get you out here because you have other duties. How did that yeah, end up developing? It was really that third, that third point It is a conversation between the folks that were requesting me, um, to become, to come out and, and do their or work, their PIO shop. And then my, my home unit. And so it really was uh, an attempt at let's try this and see if it works because post COVID, you know, we, we learned a lot during that COVID shutdown and mm-hmm. what could be handled remotely um, and when really what needed to be done in person. And so, um, you know, we had, we just had a, an opportunity where there was a, a person on the ground at the fire who could handle, you know, the um, meetings and in running, quote unquote, the, the PIO shop. And then, you know, we had a handful of us that were uh, virtual and trying to support um, what we could virtually, you know, our, our updates every day and um, the maps and, and things like that that could be handled virtually. Yeah. What, when it became a struggle is when you're trying to um, do community meetings and, and setting things up, you have one person at the fire trying to set the, the physical um, pieces of equipment up. And then the rest of us are trying to, you know, hook into Facebook and make sure that the feeds are good. And we're also monitoring the closed captioning so that there aren't any weird words that are popping up and yeah. you know, things like that. Yep. 
So and it's a I commitment. Saw, I saw struggles with that even last year. There were some fires in California where I was like, I'm going to watch this this public meeting that's happening for this fire. And they were doing it remotely still out there. And, you know, you sit, you wait for the live stream to come up. Then they tell you they have technical, excuse me, technical difficulties. And then five minutes later, the meeting's been canceled. It's like, oh, <clears throat> man. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so, and I would say that uh, some of the public doesn't remember that these fires are usually in remote places. And so, you know, you do the best that you can to provide that information. And sometimes it's, it's just not going to work. These places are so remote. If we have, even if we have a booster, if, you know, there's a, a chained, um, uh, information link that sometimes it's, it's not going to work. And then of course you have to deal with the the outpour of questions and, Hey, what happened to this? And why aren't we getting the information? When will we get the information? When will the update come out? Yeah. You know? When's the so, evacuation lifted? Everything. Yeah. Yeah. Have, have you yeah. had any disastrous community meetings? You know, personally, I have not. Okay. I don't know if I, if that's like a badge that I can wear. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Um, but the whole point of community meetings is really to you know, we are acting as that liaison. We are a sounding board and we want to make sure that we're getting the, the public, the information that they're, they're seeking. And so we, we try to be as prepared as possible with any and all information that we can, can give to the public. And usually it's, it's well received. And if there are questions, you know, we do our best to, to find them the answers if we can. So, you know, that's really the whole, the whole point of the PIO shop. Is there anything, and we don't have to dwell on this, but I do have one more question. Is there anything you wish was implemented or a part of the PIO shop or you think is outdated and is like, why are we still doing this? (laughs) Um, Well, I would say if you ask someone who PIOs up in Alaska, they're going to have a completely different answer to that question than I have here in the mainland. (laughs) Okay. All right. But honestly, I think within my network of PIOs that I work with, I think we all struggle so much right now with how technologically advanced the rest of the world is and how limited we are um, in our shop. You know, being able to live stream the um, morning briefings is kind of a it's kind of an expected thing now post COVID. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, but we're we're not set up. We're really not set up to be able to do that. It's every a logistical fire, nightmare to pull that off it every is. morning. It, it really yes. is. Yeah. Every even beforehand, every fire, just getting the equipment that's necessary. And a lot of folks that we use in the PIO shop are ADs and they come with their own equipment to make these things happen. Okay. Um, and you know, we we really need to be able, we need to be um providing that we need to be making that a, a regular part of, um, the equipment and, and what we're ready and willing to do. Well, allegedly billions and billions of dollars have been allocated for wildfire response. So maybe some of that can go to that sort of tech. I know everybody, every department though, <laughs> yeah, like, I know. well, we could use this. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm well aware of that fight. Well, Hey, so you, Got on an engine. Um, you started in the suppression world. How did that develop after that? Um, 
yeah, I've spent a couple of seasons on the engine. Uh, as soon as I started on the engine, though, I knew that prevention was the way that I wanted to go. It melds um, my educational background with my creative uh, skill set and then still keeps that, you know, that firefighting um, as a as a career. Prevention really is a an umbrella of things that you can or different ways that you can go. And so I worked for a couple seasons on the engine, but knew prevention would be where I would end up. And so I, I worked really closely with my district um, prevention at the time just to, to get a feel of what qualifications I would need. Um, I befriended the prevention at the forest uh, that um, North of us, uh, and they were really, really helpful and excited to have another prevention that could work across forest border, uh, yeah, borders. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went on some assignments with them and got the training that she was getting um, before I was even a prevention. And so that really set me up really well. So um, once I moved into prevention, then any any place that I have taken a prevention job, it seems has it has been, uh, they haven't had prevention in many, many years. And so I really got to show up and make the program and, um, set up what it was that I felt was needed there. Yeah. That's nice. Oh, it was so great. And, and I was lucky most of the places that I've worked, I've really had folks that recognized my skill set and, and really pushed me in directions that, um, maybe I wouldn't have known otherwise. And so I, I very quickly became part of a prevention team, got experience with campaigns, large campaigns, and, you know, with people that had been doing this for years and really being able to, to glean, you know, those pitfalls to look out for or more public information stuff um, to, you know, ways that we try to um, – like pull the audience for what would best, what messaging would best work for them or how they receive the messaging the best and things like that. These are, you know, things that you don't think of as a firefighter. You're like, I don't know, you show up, you tell them what's going on at the fire and you're good to go. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> but, um, you know, when you're behind the scenes and you're learning that logistical support, it was just, it really was, um, uh, the way that I like to learn and, and the way that I receive information the best. So, been working with prevention teams for a really long time and really loving that. So yeah, prevention is really where it's been at. I've been able to implement a couple of, um, you know, programs with, uh, I did a program with a local high school. Um, it's like a at-risk youth local high school program. Uh, I was able to partner with some firefighters at my local district to provide a supplementation for S-130, 190 that these students were taking online and um, I'm sure we, we've all, uh, we all have an opinion about how online learning works, right? Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and I saw an opportunity to provide some in-person training and some real life experience for those students. And luckily I had some firefighters at the district that were interested in supporting that. And we really made it a great program. And that's great. Cause it takes, it takes the feeling of chunking four miles of line in and turning around and feeling satisfied, you're still, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would assume you're still getting that satisfaction from doing programs like that. Yeah. And I think too, at least for me, having that line experience is what makes my programming robust. Um, you know, I, I, 
really hope that folks, when I work with folks, that they do see me and understand my firefighting experience, that being a prevention officer doesn't mean that I'm no longer a firefighter. I mean, I'm out on the line in the summer. I, I'm, I'm a fire investigator. Like, I'm still, I'm still a firefighter. And so when I can bring that first world or first world, excuse me, <laughs> that firsthand experience yeah. into the classroom, um, I think my excitement over how these things happen in real life on the fire line, I think that, um, you know, it makes their experience more robust They're because they're learning it out of a book or in a classroom. It's totally different. hundred percent. Can you walk me through what a prevention campaign looks like? like? Oh, I would love to. Yeah. Like how does it get started? How is it pitched? Where do you go? What are the steps? Yeah. Prevention teams, I think they're getting a little bit more highlighted, um, but they're still way underutilized. The um, benefits of a prevention team is that you have a team of folks um, that are set to a specific task for a specific uh, period of time. And so it's um, concentrated. So if let's say um, Tonto National Forest in Arizona, they are having a, a problem with uh, target shooting, uh, illegal target shooting. Okay. So when in I was the in, summer, U- in Utah, we had a huge problem with that. Yeah, yeah. In the summer when it's hot and it's dry and it's windy, um, you know, forests will put in restrictions. Hey, right now is just not a good time to, to be doing this. It's very dangerous. So mm-hmm. let's not do that for a period of time. Um, and so you have folks that are like, uh, oh, yeah, I don't really believe that. Or, or maybe they're not even paying attention and they just pass all the signs that are up. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the prevention team is then uh, identified as a tool to come down and it really depends on the forest and how they want to work it. But in this experience or in this example, you, you would have say four or five folks that come with their trucks that can, um, that are forest protection officers and they will go, um, lead a patrol. Um, and so you'll have a concentrated area, you'll have a concentrated force that are out there, um, making connections with the public that are out there, whether they're target shooting or not, they're making those connections and trying to educate folks. Hey, you know that we're in target restrictions right now. And this is why, do and you have any are, questions? Are you just driving around and finding people or do you set up a community meeting to make these announcements? How does that part work? All of the above. Okay. So for this particular campaign on the Tonto, um, we actually designed a, a sloganed campaign and it was um, shoot responsibly Arizona. Mm-hmm. And so we, uh, as a prevention team, we worked with a um, graphic designer. We created a, a visual that stood out and we felt would um, speak to the, the folks that we were trying to reach. Um, we made stickers, we, um, made, uh, flyers that had information about, you know, hot, dry, windy weather. Um, there's a study out about how hot, uh, bullet casings get and how easily it is to ignite grasses and information about ricochet. Like it's, there's a whole, there's a plethora of materials that can be developed. And then, you know, we had, um, a, a push towards some of our um, gun shops 
Uh, so we went in person to these gun shops. We asked, hey, would you mind delivering this information to folks as they come into your shops? Um, and we also had a media campaign where we talked to the local uh, newscaster, gave them the same information. Um, you know, just there's like, again, I say <laughs> there's so many different avenues that you could go and they have a two week period to do this. And so the so forest it's a, it's a tour. You you guys are assigned for a tour, right? Two, yeah. two weeks? Oh, yes. It, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Def- at least at least 14 days. And yeah. depending on the forest, if they want you to stay for a month, then, then you can be out there for a month. Yeah. So, I mean, and again, the benefit is that the forest then is able to concentrate their resources, their district resources to what's needed out there, fire response in the middle of the summer, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's this prevention team that is solely concentrated on those outreach efforts, making contacts with folks that are um, out on the forest, and then making those media campaigns, the um, stickers and the messaging, and making the contacts with the local gun shop owners, etc. When you do just the drive-throughs and talk to people who are out and about, did you ever encounter? you know, pushback from the public being like, I'm being safe. You don't need to tell me to be safe. I know what I'm doing. Like I would, I know there's people like that out there. Um, did you ever encounter anything like that? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, not to, not to start, you know, the male female line, but, (laughs) but (laughs) as a woman, I, I definitely get a little bit more pushback than I think maybe my large buff, uh, male counterpart might get. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, again, that, that's just my skill set. I, I fall back on, um, more of an educational approach. You know, I, I'm a sounding board. I let them tell me that they, they know what they're doing and that I'm just government and I'm out to take all of their rights. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I, I listen to it because, We've all been there. Nobody wants to be told what they can do and what they can't do. No one you likes know? being told what to do. No. They don't. Especially, especially when you're out just trying to relax and get away from the world. Yeah, it's right? my weekend. I was just in a cubicle doing Excel spreadsheets for five days. Why are you <laughs> Why are you talking to me right now? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, most of the time, honestly, if you just listen um, and give them that space. They understand. They know that you're doing your job, and that you know if you give them the perspective, hey, it's really just a safety concern, not just for you, but for the people that are around you right now. Um, you know, and it's not forever. It's you know, it's not forever. Mm-hmm. So maybe this weekend you could go fishing instead of shooting. Yeah. It, would that be you know? Would that be feasible? It, it's really just to keep it's to keep us safe right now. This is just not a good time to be doing this recreational activity. Yep. Well, so and, most of the time you can defuse it. It's, it's I not, think, it doesn't become a big thing. I think your efforts of just listening and letting them kind of vent it all out. Yeah. You're basically a nerf wall getting stuff thrown at you, which is kind of not fun sometimes, <laughs> but uh, in the other previous conversations I've had, when we talk about just mental health in general, people who are stressed can't relieve that stress unless they verbally express it, you know? Oh, absolutely. So it's, you are the conduit for, uh, a shotgun of stress <laughs> getting yes. shot at you 
which is admirable that you are out there doing that because personally, I wouldn't be able to handle it probably as professionally as you do. And, <laughs> and I would get irritated with people. Well, I'm not saying that it doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, you know, there's a boundary too. I mean, if it's violent, if it's abusive, I'm not going to sit there and let you be abusive. Of course. Um, at that point I'm calling the law enforcement. So, yeah. <laughs> but we can both try to be adults to begin with and, and then let's see how that goes. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the struggle sometimes is sometimes people don't want to be your counterpart adult in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you know, maybe yeah, society and- will learn how to do that more and more as we move on. Well, you know, I, I do have to say for, at least for the forest service, they, they do concentrate a lot of effort on, on training and teaching us this before, before we go out. So even if you don't inherently have that skill set, um, they don't just, agency doesn't just say, Hey, you're prevention now go out there and, and take it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's some training that goes into being a forest protection officer and, um, you know, identifying a. A, a bad situation. You yeah. know, we're never required to go into a situation that's unsafe. Um, so, you know, that relieves a little bit of pressure. You don't have to, it's not worth my life to go into a situation. This person is target shooting. Um, and then when I could just back out of that situation and call someone else who is a little bit better qualified to handle that, yeah. you know? Yep. And if there's people out there listening who are thinking, hey, when I shoot, I'm safe, all this sort of thing. It's not a big deal. I'll shoot whenever I want. I used to be that person. I, I did. I, and for a while, I used to be of the of the thought and mentality of being anti-forest closures. I, I have taken that stance in the past where I was like, come on, we're adults here. We can go hike and camp. But then I quickly learned that we're not all adults and there are people out there who are not, they're just not responsible. And it, whether it's neglect of, of just common sense of what they know is right and wrong, which I know happens, but there's also people who, like you said, there's folks who just drive and park their cars in a river. It's like, what are we doing here? And then I, there was a time where I went to like 14 target fires in a role that lasted 19 days while everybody else was going out West to forest fires and having fun. And I was stuck in the desert cleaning up after people who were shooting Tannerite and steel targets. And so I slowly came around and was like, okay, we actually do have to think about this more so than just people are responsible. Cause it, when it comes down to it, not all people are and I, I learned it over just attrition of like, oh my gosh, we're going to another one of these things. Yeah. And you know, it might not even come down to responsibility. I, I, I truly believe in, um, human nature as a whole will look out for itself. Um, and you know, we saw, uh, when, with the COVID shutdown, there were a lot of folks, we'll say urbanites that did not know how to recreate in the woods. That's not, it's not what they do on a normal, normal day to day or weekend to weekend basis. You know, they might walk a greenway path in the city. That's not the same thing as going hiking in the woods. Right. And so they would come out. Yeah. They would come out completely unprepared. 
a little, you know, eight ounce bottle of water for a whole day hiking in, in the mountains. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that, that transposes to many of the recreation, um, aspects of, of the forest. Um, and so having that position of understanding and, and trying to educate, I feel is, um, a better stance than, Hey, you idiot. Don't you know any better? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's just not the practical way to approach that (laughs) as much as you want to say it, you know, and even if it is true, you're not going to, you're not going to cut through that mental block that they already have. (laughs) But I'm not surprised. And yeah, there are a lot of people who just aren't used to that experience. Like I was reading the other day that 30% of Americans have never seen a cow in real life. Oh my gosh. Like that's crazy, right? (laughs) Totally. Especially like my perspective is so skewed because I've been doing this for so long. Yeah. (laughs) I forget that, you know, there are, there are people who live their entire lives in a city Yeah, and you know, you, if you throw them out in the middle of the woods, man, that's gotta be scary. (laughs) Yeah. Like you said, they bring an eight ounce bottle of water for a seven and a half mile trip to a waterfall. Right. What are you doing? (laughs) What are you doing? Yes. But that being said, like people don't, people don't just don't even drink water in their normal day to day. And so mm-hmm. they're like, why, why do I need this? Yep, exactly. It's crazy. So that's how you have to approach the situation. Yeah. You know, the, you have to find a common ground first. You can't expect someone to be at a, this, this, um, expert level, uh, when, when they've n- never been here before, they've never encountered this before. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that transitions even into a lot of experiences that firefighters have is like, even in the grocery store. And we had a PIO where I worked in Utah who was very proactive. He would show up to our shop all the time and talk to the crews and be like, Hey, these are the do's and don'ts. When people ask you this, you know, these are the things that maybe you should pitch out there. Um, but like even it's, it's classic. You have, you go to your grocery store stop, right? You go in, everybody goes, spreads out. If you have a hot chocolate, you got 22 people just shotgunned out in the grocery store and it's a, and it's a scene, right? The people, mm. people notice it and folks come up and talk to you and are like, Hey, how's the fire going? And you have the, the, the classic rookie response is either I don't know, or the thing's blowing up or, you know, we don't have enough people Mm-hmm. And, and it's that, it's that gray area between, well, number one, the public isn't an expert in this field, so they don't know the terminology. And, and for someone who's even been in the industry for a long time, if you're like, oh yeah, the fire's blowing up, doesn't always necessarily mean it's the end of the world, but to the, a normal folk who is, you know, checking the firmness of an avocado and then they talk to you. It's like, oh my gosh, it's blowing up. Oh, Frank, we need to get out of here. And you cause panic because you assume these people understand what the hell you're talking about. Yeah. And even the reverse is true. You have panicked uh, public coming to you and they're, you know, they're upset that there's so much, so much smoke coming from the fire, but you being seasoned, you're looking out there thinking, um, are you seeing the same thing I'm seeing? Yeah. It's just skunking <laughs> around a little bit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it is, you're, you're hitting it on the head. It's really understanding that the public isn't doing what we're doing. They they don't, they are not surrounded by the woods every day. They are not, um, required to hike, (laughs) to be able to hike with 
you know, however much weight and for long periods of time mm-hmm. and to be away from their family for days on end and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They aren't required to do this. So expecting them to understand is not an, it's just not a viable expectation. Yeah. You really have to remind yourself to, um, more so put yourself in their shoes. Remember what it was like before you became a firefighter. Would you have understood this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent. If there are folks out there who want to navigate or transition into the prevention side of things, what would your advice be? What kind of training do they need to go down that Avenue? What are your thoughts there? Oh man. Um, my first, my, my first thing to say is we need more. So yeah. <laughs> if it's, even slightly interesting, please pursue it. Um, I honestly, any prevention that I've ever worked with and who's in my network of, of folks that I continually work with, we're all so pleased if anybody wants to, um, pick our brains, ride with us, um, participate in any program, man, we love having folks and, um, showing them what the world of prevention is like. So that would be the first step is find your local prevention, pick their brain, have a conversation, let them know your interest. Um, I think the first step into that, though, is really um, understanding what um, the umbrella of prevention is. If you are a crew minded person, like you um, really need to be with five to 19 other people, Mm -hmm. prevention is probably not the way to go for you. It's a very singular person job. Um, it's off, it often requires you to do the job of multiple people. So understanding that you're driving around in a truck by yourself to patrol, um, and that you are implementing these programs usually by yourself, uh, is definitely something to know when you go into it. The two pieces I think um, that are important as far as training is uh, some sort of public information training. Go ahead and take the um, the first level class. Uh, get your feet wet. Um, volunteer for a team uh, assignment or a fire that's on your district. And then the other thing is to look into a forest protection officer. It is a couple days training. Um, it does require a background check and there's legality to it. I mean, you're legally um uh, certified to be a forest protection officer. Mm -hmm. And with that comes a lot of responsibility. There's things you can and cannot do. There are things that you need law enforcement present for. Um, and so that training is very intense and, um, making sure that you understand your role as a forest protection officer. But those are the two, um, I think beginning trainings that if anybody's interested, that's what they should start with, uh, to see if it's, if it continues to be an interest for them. Awesome. Sounds like we need to recruit smoke jumpers because they're used to just being alone and sitting (laughs) by themselves. (laughs) But yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I know there's people out there that are looking down that, that road, that route. There's actually a lot of folks I know who are hotshots or jumped into the hotshot world and they started, they started out wanting to do prevention, but then they got in kind of like how you did. They got into actual suppression first, but now they're getting some qualifications and some responsibility and some permanent positions. And now the struggle for them is, well, now do I do what I initially set out to do or do I stay in this groove that I've kind of mm-hmm. cut for myself? And that's a hard choice for people. 
Oh yeah. I I'm actually going through that myself. Uh, you know, as I think all of us, as we advance in our career, the, the more promotion in the GS level that you get, the further from the line you are, um, you get removed from that. And, and it's definitely for me, at least it's an identity struggle because you've spent so much time and energy committed to learning, um, or perfecting this skill set, um, your physical fitness, your mental strength, um, and learning or adding to your fire slides, you know? And then as you get removed from that, um, it's a little bit of guilt. (laughs) You (laughs) You you almost feel like you're betraying yourself. Yes, it does. It, it feels very much, I'm, I I have felt a, a tear between, um, uh, I'm, I'm going to use the word contribution. I feel like my contribution as a quote unquote firefighter is totally different than my contribution as a program director. Okay. But I feel very passionate that a robust prevention program is necessary. And in order to do that, I'm the person with that skill set. So I'm the one that needs to set that up and I have to recruit folks that are at that field level, you know? Yeah. So that, that's very, it's been very difficult for me, um, emotionally and mentally just dealing with that, um, that pull away from, you know, the, the front line. hundred percent. And, and I think another part of it is people like value, whether it's, uh, in a personal relationship or the job you do, it you, subconsciously or outright you uh, you assign value to something and that's how you you judge it and hold it in your life the the previous work that's been done and and perhaps the work that you've done to use you as an example since we're talking to you is mm-hmm. you know the value of what you've done and it's valuable but it's there's unknown value potential of what you may get into and it goes back again to where we started the podcast, that feeling of even fear and and uh, hesitation because you already know what you have and you know there's value in it, but it's hard to make that jump into something where it's unknown w- what the payout is and what if you're going to be satisfied from it. You yeah. Know, you know what that, I'm saying? Yes, that fear of missing out type yeah. situation. Yeah. And I, I think it's... Um, emphasized too by, uh, hmm, let's see how I can say this. (laughs) Um, yeah, I think, I think we all within the fire world, uh, have recognized, um, some of our own have a tendency to be negative and, and they're the first to tear, uh, each other down. hundred percent. And so I think part of, I, part of what I experience is that fear of, I already, I already am afraid of, um, you know, stepping out there and creating something and it failing. I think everybody is, yeah. um, you know, really where you get that resiliency is whether or not you go for it in any way. And it's the only way to find out. Right. And, and so you give yourself credit for being brave enough to do that, but then you know that your cohort is potentially waiting (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for you to be so that they can say, yeah, so see, we, we knew that wouldn't work. <laughs> and it, that's, that's true. And I have these conversations with current and former hotshot smoke jumpers, all these folks. 
and it's more noticeable of the people who have left the industry after a decade, two decades, whatever it is, where it is known. Like it's people are really negative in this industry when you try to branch out and do something different or you want to go down a different road or, hey, I'm going to get these qualifications so maybe this position opens up but I can take it. It's amazing. And obviously you see it, I see it, the people I talk to see it. There's this mentality of, nah, you can't do that. Why would you do that? Just stay here. And that baffles me for an industry that pushes do something that you know you aren't able to do go the extra mile cut an extra tank do this do that and i just i i can't figure out where the disconnect is honestly i just can't figure it out yeah i i agree i i'm not really sure what the formula is either because i have been fortunate in my career i have had so many afmos fmos um my leadership that have recognized my skill set and directed me um, into things that I didn't know. I, you know, as a first, first season, second season firefighter, you know, nothing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and man, how fortunate I was that I had, I had leadership support, but I've also been in situations where the overall leadership just, that's no, that's the answer is always no. Yeah. Um, and I don't know what the formula is. I'm not really sure. I haven't seen like a particular situation that shows up every time. And so you should, you should just expect that the answer is going to be no. Um, because you know, one AFMO will, will see potential in it and another won't. Yeah. So I, I, I'm really not sure you really just honestly have to, to step out every single time on faith that it's going to, you know, get support. Yeah. I've kind of defaulted and there, this may be the, the wrong way to do it. But I have kind of defaulted to if it's a good idea, everyone hates on it. If it's a <laughs> bad idea, everybody thinks it's great until it's implemented and then everybody sees that it's this bad idea. And it's and again, it's also may just be the projection of fear and uncertainty when you say, hey, I've, I'm going to go move into prevention or hey, I'm going to go jump or I want to be an FMO and you're telling this to people in the industry, they may just be projecting their fear of change and what it would be like for them to try to attempt that. Like that's kind of how I've broken it down. Could, mm. could be wrong, but, but I'm, I've been thinking about it for years and years cause you see it. And it's just curious that it's, it's perpetuated throughout the industry. That's an interesting take. My perspective has been, um, if it requ- if it takes a commitment outside of what that person usually does, mm-hmm. um, I think we are all so spread thin, and we are all tasked with more and more every year, with fewer and fewer people in the workforce. Yeah, um, my experience has really been a fear of I, I can't commit to that, Jay. I, I would love for that to be implemented. I would if you can run with it and make it happen by yourself. Great. <laughs> yeah. But I can't but, dedicate to this cause I'm already stretched. Yes. Thin. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's really just, you know, uh, again, I'm seeing it through my own life experience and I, I see, you know, my leadership that every year they're tasked with more and more and more and more <laughs> yep. and they're given fewer people to do it with every year. Um, 
And, but you know, the same applies for me. I can't make a robust program with only me. I, I am, you know, I'm tasked with liaisoning with our local volunteer fire departments and with our schools in the area. And also all of the tasks that are associated with being a fire prevention patrol. Um, and I, I can't do that all by myself, Yeah. but you know, the forest service policy, um, truly is that we can't single out any entity. If we make ourselves available for one, we have to make ourselves available for all. Yep. And so how can you do that as one prevention person? You know? And that's the struggle, right? It, that's the struggle. Yeah. I, I need the help of a team. I need district personnel that can go with me to, to this event or to this school or provide an engine for this particular program or, you know, I, I, I need participation. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to move on from this topic, but to another great topic. I know you talk about it and I think it's fascinating because everyone's family is different, but a lot of the time the reaction to an individual in your family, especially from like parents of, of, of your child going into the wildfire world. And you've talked about this and, and have tried to help educate people in, Hey, this is what your family member who is a firefighter is going through. These are some sort of things that can help you connect while they're away. Can you talk about maybe even what your folks thought when you went into this and things people can on the civilian side, parents, partners who need help or what you think are benefits that they could understand for people in this industry and especially starting out initially that first one or two years, it's, it's tough on people. Yeah. The first couple of years definitely is, I think the transition um, period that you're, it's either going to make you or break you. Uh, (laughs) Um, And so that's essentially what 10 and 18 is really hopefully designed for. I, when I was um, looking uh, for platforms that are wildland fire based, I noticed, and there's a lot of them out there. There are. <laughs> but I, I noticed that a lot of them are, are uh, designed for the audience that's internal to, to firefighters. Yeah. Um, and that I, I, that's wonderful because there's now so many different ways that we can get the same information or share information. Um, and I think that's great, but I did notice that, um, you know, that we use, we use our own vernacular. We make a lot of assumptions. Uh, Oh, another 14, um, okay. which makes sense to us, but you know, my family, <laughs> I've been working for the forest service since 2011. And my mother still tells people that I work for the forestry, forestry department, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's not, it's really not a big deal. Um, because whoever she's talking to, they, they, they are having know. this, they're right. They're yeah. having the same assumption. Yeah. Oh, but for those oh of us, that's so nice. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's really just a mundane point to whatever story my mother is telling them anyway, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> but, um, it, it just kind of highlights that there's a lot of times that we internally, we, we talk to one another and we have these stories and we're sharing things and our family just kind of gets this glazed look over their face because they, they don't know these details and they don't know how important those details are. Right. Yeah, yep. Um, and so, 
I was thinking back in the first couple of years that I, I was working for the Forest Service and uh, my parents really struggled. Um, I, I was an adult when I moved into the Forest Service. So I was on my second career. It wasn't like, you know, empty nest syndrome for them. Yeah. But I had been living local. I, I had been within a four hour drive of my parents. And so moving away, one, um, across the country, and then two, it, it was the first time that connectivity was questionable as well. And folks don't realize that there are still remote places that you do not get cell service. They're everywhere. There's more <laughs> than there's more than you can even imagine. Right? Yeah. And so if I would go, you know, seven, eight days without calling my folks, which some people that that's normal for them, but it's not normal for my family. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, my parents would either one worry or they'd wonder why I was mad. They didn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, why isn't um, she calling? Yes, yes, and especially with their daughter being, you know, a country away, they they can't, you know, drive by and make sure that I'm okay. So, yeah. um, there was an adjustment period, and and I'm hoping that I can, you know, do little, uh, provide little clips and little pieces of information for for um, parents and partners, new, new partners to, um, our wildland firefighters about little things like that. Hey, when, when they say I, I have, I just got off the line and we're headed to chow. That's probably the only text you're going to get. That, that is the communication. That, that is, that is, is the, the hello. How are you? How have things been? Exactly. Yeah. And, and no, it's not a replacement for, for hello. How are you? How has your day been? But it is what, what that firefighter is able to give you and understanding how much energy and mental preparation that took for the firefighter to, to say, okay, I'm finally in service. I, I got to get this text out before I lose service again. Yeah. There's this um, one Canyon pass that, you know, you can, you have 45 seconds of service. If you hold your phone up by the window exactly. and, and if you don't get that text out, you may go another eight days. Exactly. And, and I really, I, like, like I said, I, I want to acknowledge that it's not a replacement. It's not a replacement for having them in hand, but to understand the value that it, that it is, yep. um, I think would help ease that transition. You know, it, you know, when you're on a, a fire assignment, even when you're driving out to, you know, you're driving from Colorado to California, um, you know, you're driving, you take your shift of driving, you can't text while you're driving. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you've been driving now for eight hours. So what do you want to do when someone else takes over driving? You're going to take a nap in the back of the buggy. Yeah, you're going to crush an apple fritter <laughs> and a bag of uh, salt and vinegar chips and you're going to rack out. Yes. Yeah. And again, you know, the person on the other end is thinking, I've gone all day. You You haven't texted me all day. You can't just say hi yeah. or send a picture or whatever it is. And that feeling is understandable. Again, my platform, I'm, I, I want to provide a, a space where folks feel validated that these are true feelings and they're honest feelings yeah. that you're going to have. Um, but then, you know, I, I think I present a unique perspective that I have been on both sides. And so here's what it looks like from the firefighter side. Yeah. You know, I've been driving for eight hours I'm exhausted from doing that. I haven't 
had a snack. I'm going to crush this bag of chips and I'm going to take a nap. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and appreciating that, you know, understanding that's what that firefighter needs to do in order to be prepared to roll into station the next day and be ready to go wherever operation sends them. Yep. Yeah. I, I've been on both sides of it as well. I've been the firefighter with folks and, and partners who are just like, what the heck, why don't you reach out anymore? And then I've been, since I've been out, I've been in relationships with firefighters where I, of course I understand now cause I've lived the life and it's like, oh, okay, they they're out of service, so on and so forth. But 14 days is actually a long time. And it's like, okay, the person that I love has been gone for 14 days. I understand it because I've lived it before. But now it's like, oh my gosh, what this is a long time. Yeah. Day nine is the roughest for everyone yeah. all around. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Because it's not, it's not just 14 days. You have three days of travel on one side and three days of travel on the other side. Exactly. You're talking about half a month. <laughs> yeah, for one for one tour. One of the for one tour. One of the biggest like wake up calls I got was I I what just exactly what we're talking about. I didn't understand that. And then one a season ended and I yeah, I was much younger. This is probably 12 years ago. And I went to meet with a gal that I loved at the time and we were great friends for a really really long time. And I met up with her and we started chatting. And she stopped the conversation and she goes, Tim, you don't realize that seven and a half months have gone by. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she goes, everyone has lived seven and a half months of time without you. And now you're back and you're acting like it was a weekend. And to me, it felt like that. It felt like a weekend. Oh, fire season's over. Let's go party. Let's go hang out. But having someone that I loved tell me that was one of the biggest wake up calls in my fire career. Like, holy shit, a lot of time has passed. And that's hard. It's hard on both sides. Yeah. You know, you're, you're also as the firefighter, you're missing out on all the climbing trips. Mm-hmm. You're missing out on all the, you know, beers after work. Yeah. Um, and especially if you have someone back home that you love and, and, you know, on that end, the person, the partner, yeah. the it's, I've talked with several, uh, um, girlfriends here. There's a little bit of a guilt, like maybe I shouldn't do this one yet. Maybe I should wait for him to come home. That way we could go time. and do this. Yeah. hundred percent. So that, that person is struggling with how much of their life should they live? You yeah. know? Yeah. Um, and then you're missing that bonding experience as well. Uh, she, you know, the home life has a story about this adventure, this weekend adventure, um, that you missed out on as the firefighter and the firefighter, you know, there's stories and inside jokes and all sorts of things that happen on the fire line that, you know, the home life is missing out on. Yeah. And so that bonding experience definitely gets postponed for, for the duration of assignment season. And that's so hard. It is. And, Again, not I, impossible. Hope- it's not impossible. Exactly. And, you know, I, uh, Danny Shedden and I had an interview um, la- at the end of last year. And one of the things that she said or, or really emphasized was that communication and really expressing what that expectation is going to be for both of you. Every couple is going to be different. And let's not just say couples, you know, with parents as well. If I had known as a first year firefighter how much 
travel would be involved and how many assignments I would be on and how um, disconnected I would be, I would have let my parents know. Yeah. But I didn't even know. Mm-hmm. So there was no, even if we had had a conversation, we wouldn't have had the correct expectation for that first summer. But hopefully this platform will, will be a, a tool for folks to use and, and be able to have that conversation and, and maybe a little understanding about what first season would look like, or, you know, even the difference between an engine season and a hotshot season, you know? Yeah, there's going to be differences are, in, in all of that. Very different. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I find it fascinating because it affects everyone in the industry. And, and then of course the people on the home front. On, on my side, my dad, he was just like, oh, yeah, you're going to be a firefighter. Okay, whatever. And he was busy in his life doing what he what he did. He ran a business and he was a busy guy. My mom was freaked out about it. And she was kind of more okay with it when I started because my brother had been in it for a couple of years. And he was in Alaska for most of his career. So it was like no communication, massive time difference. And so she kind of was okay with it. But again, the first two years, she's, you know, you get a phone call and you're like, don't die. (laughs) Okay, I'll try my best not to die. Thanks, mom. But it's four years in the season would end and I'd come home for Thanksgiving and I'd come into the house and I'd just be a tornado and just, oh, screw all you people. But lovingly screw all you people like, ah, you know, this should be this way. And like, how come this is this? And why hasn't anybody organized the chairs the way they're supposed to be nine hours from now? And, you know, four years in, I remember it like it's yesterday. My mom stopped me in the kitchen and she goes, you need to leave. And I was like, what? Oh, my gosh. And she's like, no, not just the house. Like, you need to leave. Like, get out of the country. Leave for two weeks. Come back. Get everything out. And, you know, you'll be able to reassimilate a little bit better into the family life. And she was right. I, I came in hot and I, I was, I was still acting like it was day two, waking up, trying to get stuff done. And these are people who just want to make spritz cookies and carve a turkey, (laughs) you know? Yes. Yeah. I have a similar, I recently had a similar conversation with my mother. Um, I lose my patience with folks that don't get stuff done. Of course. You know, you see a problem or you, you have a task for the day we're all trained. We're going to the line today. We're digging as as long as we need to dig. <laughs> We're chaining out uh, cut wood as long as we need to do it. Like yeah. th- until this gets done, that's, yep. that's what we're going to be doing. And so in like day to day life, when, when people leave tasks undone and it's just like, Oh, I, um, I don't know. I just didn't feel like it today. I lose my patience. Like yeah, of course. there's, there's stuff to be done. And my mom said, pulled me aside and she was like, you need to understand that no one is as dedicated as you are. Yep. <laughs> and I don't know if that's a, just a, a personal push. Like I strive, I, I say I, we as like type A personalities, um, we want to give, we want to hand over a good product. You know, we want, we want that IMT to say, yep, I, we worked with such and such crew. They rocked it. I'll have them again. You know, you want the shout out. Absolutely. And in other crews know your name. (laughs) That's a big deal in our fire world, right? It is a big deal. Right. And so we're dedicated. Probably a bigger deal than it needs to be. But it's back to that satisfaction. They know who we are. They know what we do. They know what we're capable of. And that feels good. 
Well, you know, we just talked about how long fire season is and how long assignments are. 75 to 80% of our life is dedicated to what we're doing. Yeah. So, yeah, we want we want a good product. We want our life to mean something. Yep. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but she reminded me that that's not, you know, that's not normal life. Yeah, that's, not how, <laughs> that's not how everybody acts. That's not how everyone conducts themselves, nor do they need to. You know, yeah. our situation on the fire line, it's time sensitive. Mm-hmm. If, if we don't put this line in here, uh, we're going to have to start over and put a line somewhere else. So we need to get it done. and and it's it's an adjustment for both sides it's an adjustment for the firefighter to realize maybe i'm i'm still wound up a little bit and that's that can be okay but you should find an outlet for that energy other than your family's living room and on your family side again like what you're working on is understanding why you're acting that way yeah. And, and from the firefighter side, inviting your family into that, letting them know that it's a struggle, yeah. um, on the, on the family side, they're walking around wondering what they did wrong. You've been away all summer and now you're just mad at me all the time. Yeah. What, what have I done? Yeah. And on the firefighter side, I'm not mad at you at all. I'm, I'm trying to de-stress and not, <laughs> not anticipate having to be up at five o'clock every morning and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so really inviting each other into that world that you've been in for the whole summer. Um, because they've been two totally different worlds. Absolutely. One is basically you're living in a penal colony for seven and a half months and the other, and the, and the (laughs) other one's just grinding away, doing the daily thing that humans do on earth. And it's, there's that transition and, and re, you know, integration period that, is a struggle. It just flat out is a struggle for folks. Sure. And I feel like too, there's a, there's a lack of conversation about, um, guilt and resentment that, uh, you know, the person in the home life, we're talking about partners now, but person in the home life, they're, they're keeping the wheels going. They're keeping that train moving forward. They're paying the bills. They're taking the dogs to the vet. They're dealing with the broken sink, whatever it is. Um, and then, uh, the firefighter does, you know, they, they're feeling guilty that they weren't around to help with that and that, you know, they need to be pulling their weight. We're all type A, right? We need to be pulling our weight yeah. <laughs> and feeling guilty that they weren't around for, for the things that you needed mm-hmm. at, as, a, as a home keeper. Um, so, again, my original statement was there needs to be that conversation. And you can't, you can't expect for it to just dissipate. You have to be able to communicate about it. And is that, is that the best solution for lowering that feeling of guilt and, and that feeling of I've missed out is just, Hey, we need to sit down and talk about this. Well, gosh, I'm not the expert in relationships. Yeah, That's what have, I, I had Danny opinion. for. You have an opinion on it though. <laughs> I sure do, you know, but I'm lucky. I have a partner that sees life the same way I do. Yeah. We both are firefighters. We both come from that, um, uh, life. Um, so I feel like I have a little more understanding like you and I have, have talked about, we yep. have a little more understanding about what that looks like on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, my transition into being a little bit more support in the support role. Yep. Um, you know, he's, he's very, uh, accepting and 
um, supportive and encouraging about that transition, that feeling I was talking about at the beginning of this um, interview was, you know, feeling that kind of guilt of pulling away from the, from the front line a little more, being more in that supportive and leadership role, you know? Yeah. So I'm lucky. And yes, that's, that's what we, we make a point to communicate about what those expectations are and um, what we can expect over the season and, and Hey, how are we going to handle such and such if this comes up, you know? Yeah. I, I think the biggest thing, at least from what I've experienced, and I'm speaking from experience of being in relationships with other firefighters is assumptions and assuming the other person knows because mm-hmm. they've known this life, they've been in this life. And even if you, even if you're, you're in a relationship with someone who's not a firefighter, but I found it in, in my relationships was we would just assume that we knew what was, what was going on. And, mm-hmm. and it's just not the case. It's mm-hmm. why we have language, you know, let's just talk about this stuff because yeah, it, the assumptions is what is what ultimately turns into, well, why are you mad at me then? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that's that causes problems sometimes. It's a commitment to understanding. And, and I think that's in any any part of your life, um, you know, walking in someone else's shoes, it, it that takes effort. It, it's not yeah. really intuitive. Um, so assumption is kind of like that's the habit. That's the automatic response. You do it this way, so you assume someone else does it that way. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, if you're, I feel like if if you're really committed to a robust and supportive relationship, then having those conversations and and having them in a way that's productive, you know, both being in the mindset of we're having this conversation to um, avoid misunderstanding or, um, complications in the future. Yeah. So, you know, we're preemptively having this conversation and, and honestly it takes both because if my partner wasn't so supportive and, and on the same page, then I think our, our conversations would definitely be different. (laughs) Yeah. You feel like you're talking to a wall. You do, or, you know, it's someone that there's a, a tendency to be defensive when you're trying to explain yourself. Right. I would, like I would to- get defensive. I've, I've yeah. worked on that a lot, but, uh, I know that of myself when someone was trying to be like, Hey, this is what I'm seeing. These are the problems. I was so operationally minded in a supervisor sense that I was like, what? Well, you no, it's not. What are you, what are you talking about? And it's true. It's just straight up true. What you just said. And, and it's, it's work. It takes practice and now in my life, I think it's good and I encourage people to practice that sort of thing because it's what it's what's going to help. I, I agree. I, you know, again, you and I are both just talking from firsthand experience, but um, I've also been in relationships where that conversation didn't take place or it was more of a defensive argument or um, someone feeling like their intelligence was questioned yeah. rather than uh, a preemptive Hey, we, we know that this could be a problem in the future because it has been a problem in the past. So let's, let's have this conversation now so that we can try to avoid it and change how we handle it in the future. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's great advice. Well, Hey, 
looping back to the beginning of the conversation, you like setting goals for yourself year by year. What are some of your career goals going forward? You're in the prevention, you're working as a fire investigator, you are putting together these campaigns, you're working on 10 and 18. What are some of your goals going forward as you further your career? Um, these, these are, these are my goals imagined right now. I'm, I'm really living the life that I have been building up until this point. Um, I'm a prevention team lead, uh, I have been listed on the national rotation. Um, I hope to do that again this year and really, uh, continue pushing the use of prevention teams and, and helping for us to understand the benefit of that tool. And then I'd really love for this platform to take off. I, I, I see a potential, I see a need, um, and I'm hoping that I'm the person to make that happen. I will say, man, <laughs> I did not realize how much time and effort goes into creating content. <laughs> yeah, it's more, than, just, it's more than you expect, isn't it? Oh, man. And I'm just a one-man show. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so there's definitely a learning curve. And I'm hoping that the viewers that I have right now are willing to to stick it out and, and wade through it with me until I can get you know, get things solidified in, in my equipment and <laughs> mm-hmm. my editing time. And it is definitely, it's a second job. Um, but man, really, those are, those are the two things. Uh, I, my family is the most important. And so the things that I have going on in my life are things that will su- ultimately support that. So, um, as long as I'm, I've got a happy home life and a satisfied home life, then I think these two, um, careers or, or these two pieces of my career are just going to keep chucking along. Yeah. I love it. And I think it will grow as long as you just keep doing it. It's, that's what it is in my mind is, is as long as you just keep doing it. And is this, I'm just speaking out of experience. My sister is in this world as well and she's had wild success with it. And she just goes, she just keeps grinding away even on the days that she doesn't want to, or she feels like no one's listening, no one's watching she'll just keep grinding away and, and, and it's proven that the perseverance is, is what counts. It's that consistency that we talked about early on, but you're right. It is, it is a job. It takes up a lot of time and, uh, it, at some points it can be overwhelming. Mm. Yep. And that's when we all reach out to each other, right. To yeah. have that little bit of uh, support people who know who are in it and know what's going on and understand the struggle. So I appreciate uh, being able to talk with you. This was awesome. Oh, I think it's great. Can I ask you one more question if you want to dive into a subject? Sure. What is your advice for women moving into the wildfire world? Well, that um, women in fire is definitely a need. Yep. Um, And so... Knowing knowing that it's a need as you move into it, uh, I think is important to keep keep in mind. Um, it's difficult. I think I'm just trying to I'm trying to get my thoughts in order about this because it's definitely a, a little bit of a touchy uh, subject and totally in my understand. heart, absolutely, <laughs> because I have both been um, supported, overly supported, and also undervalued simply because of my gender. Um, and so to touch on you saying that this is kind of a touchy subject and, and, you know, walking on eggshells, 
for those of out there listening who don't understand that, I have spoken to women that I know and love in the wildfire world who are crazy good at operations. They are dialed people. And, and I've known them for years and years and years. And I asked them, hey, do you want to come on the show and just talk about the struggles of being a woman in wildland fire? And they are, they're hesitant because of what, what is a difficult thing to talk about. So I know I didn't just throw you a softball question, and I would appreciate any answer that you give. Yeah, and I'm happy to talk about it. it it's, you know, it, it's important to state that it's, it's such a hard topic because um, there isn't one there isn't one experience for all and it's not a singular experience everywhere you go either. Mm-hmm. So when you, when you comment about it or you have a discussion about it, people hear it as a blanket statement and that's, that's not, you know, the heart of what, what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, I've had, I've had leadership, mostly leadership that have really um, supported women in fire and, have ex- had expressed to me early on in my career that in order to not be seen as a woman in fire, quote unquote, I will have to work extra hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a, I'm a smaller individual. <laughs> and so I don't innately have uh, a lot of physical strength. So it's very important to me. I, I don't have an off season. Yeah. physically. Yeah. I am constantly, constantly working on my physical strength and improving my physical strength. Um, you know, uh, there's a, every, every district has their own physical fitness program and their own physical fitness test at the beginning of the season. And, um, although nationally, all we have to do is pass the pack test, yeah. right. Yep. Um, but you don't know that going into it, your first season, you feel I pass the pack test. I have my red card. I'm good to go. No. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not the case. That's not the case. Yeah. Now you have another district physical fitness test that you have to pass. And some are, you know, some are fine and, and others are, I don't know who is able to pass those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then, so you get past the physical fitness part of it. And now it's, um, you know, there's, there's already a part of being a female that is, um, comes with security risk. I'm going to say, mm-hmm. um, I grew up in the Bible belt of the United States. I was raised with a situational awareness of never being alone at night and not being in a parking lot for too long by yourself and all these things. Right. Yeah. And so when you're thrown into a situation for me as a prevention officer, I'm thrown into a situation where I'm driving in the middle of the forest <laughs> by myself mm-hmm. and I'm interacting with people that you don't know, you don't, you don't, you come in up on a camp. You don't know if they have firearms. You don't know if they're doing drugs. You don't know if they're a serial killer. You don't, you don't know anything about them. Yeah. Um, and so there's that, that sense of security that you have to, um, I don't know, instill in yourself. Yeah. Adapt to. Yeah. Which obviously I'm not a guy. And so I can't say firsthand what a guy would experience, but in talking with my fellow firefighters, I don't think that they have the same sense of security risk going into the same situation. No, most, most men I know who are the alpha type type a personalities, they go into any situation. And if there's any sort of tension, they just, in the back of their mind, they're just like, whatever, I'll come out the other side. (laughs) Right. And and I, I don't think that's, again, I don't think that's your average mindset. 
And right. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine, you know, I'm not, you know, five foot five. I'm not, I'm, I'm over six foot. And there, there's just that presence that adds to that security of being right. involved in a situation. So that this is why I ask these things because I, I've never seen this lens that you're looking through. Yeah. And it was nice that I got my start on an engine and I had other folks that were with me that could teach me some of these things. And, um, I built my, my confidence on the fire line before I was then in a situation where I was by myself encountering these folks. So I had a skill set that I was confident in while I was building this other skill set that needed a little bit more, um, uh, finesse. So mm-hmm. again, with being a, a woman in fire, I think if you're physically small, you're automatically seen that way and, and you need to accept it. Um, I know some women who wear that as like a badge of honor. I'm going to, I'll show them. I, I can kick anybody's butt. I and see then that I, mentality quite a bit. A lot of the women I know have that chip on their shoulder. Yeah. And then you've also seen on the other end, someone who believes it. I'm, I'm too small to do this job sure, yeah. and they're, they're just waiting to wash out. Yeah, um, that's and that's right. And that's really sad. And again, being a touchy subject, that's really sad for the rest of us that are really trying because we, anybody who's trying, anybody who's in fire or any woman who's in fire is seen through the lens of any other woman in fire someone encounters. And so, yeah, it's, it's, very, almost, it's almost like that's the, what is always talked about that catchphrase of the slideshow. Right. And, and maybe an experience that someone had with, with a gal in the wildfire world, you built that slide and ultimately it's unfair to all the other women who are, who are now involved encountering someone with that slide they've built. Does that make sense? Yes. And, and it, it's something I think all of us are aware of, and if we're not, um, we should be, and yeah. it is, it is part of it. Maybe it, it's not fair, quote unquote, but it is the reality of it. Mm-hmm. And so you, as that woman trying have to have to accept it. And then you, as that woman who is lacking the confidence, hopefully knowing that other women are going to be reflected upon is somewhat of a confidence booster for you and, and pushes you to be the best that you can be yeah. Um, because you know that it reflects on, on everyone else. Yeah. I, and I, like you said, there's the fairness and then there's the reality and they're both true. But I was one of those individuals where I, I was told by a gal in fire, she's like, I have more to overcome than you. And initially I thought, well, that's not true we're doing the same job, so on and so forth. But how you explained it and now how I understand it, I totally see where she was coming from. It's like, yeah, not, it's not always more physically to overcome, more mentally to overcome, relationship wise to overcome. It can be a a piece of any of those. And, Mm -hmm. and like I said, you know, it's, I, and like, it's hard for me to speak on it cause I'm not a woman, but I understand more and more as I spoke, I speak to gals in the industry where it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. I, I, I guess I do understand that now. And, and it's, it's an under, it's one of another one of those things is it's an understanding and, uh, yeah, no, I appreciate you touching on it. I think it's also hard for women to talk about it because 
we are, we do feel a sense of camaraderie and a sense of family with the folks that we work with. And so there is such a thing as healthy competition, right? That Mm -hmm. we all experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And we want to be a part of that uh, just as a human being, but also as part of that fire family. But in the back of your mind, when you already know um, (laughs) you're not you're not going to do, you know, 30 (laughs) pull-ups out the gate, um, you know, couch to season, you're, you're, that's just not what you're going to be capable of doing. You already feel that bit of separation. And so it it makes it harder. Um, it, it, it just makes it harder for that to overcome, to overcome that piece of it, to, um, maybe hide that piece of it so that you um, feel like you're part of the family and that you're not putting that guilt on your family members because it's not their fault, Yeah, you know? Um, and, and you don't want to play the blame game. Like, well, I have to overcome more than, I'm sure she didn't say it this way. I'm just using it as an example. Like I have to overcome more than you do. That's already starting, um, starting the relationship at, at an imbalance that isn't necessary. You guys are, both going to be, or everybody's going to be stuck in the same engine or the same crew all summer. You guys are going to be miserable together. <laughs> You're going to be, yeah. you know, hiking the line together. Like we don't need to start with this, you know, uh, crevice uh, of separation that's not going to help anything. Yep. And so I think, you know, at least I am mindful of that when I have a conversation with someone, um, and I think that's what makes talking about women in fire such a t- touchy subject because we don't want, we already have so much that separates us, but we don't want to add more that separates us. And it comes back to, again, those assumptions and, well, well I assume they understand it because they're one right. of us, or I assume they don't understand it because they're, you know, female and male. And again, it's, it's that it's, the importance of the communication and level-headed communication from everyone involved right? Um, to dispel those assumptions that are made when you come in. And I think with anything, any kind of crew cohesion, it takes time. You know, you have 100%. to learn to trust, to trust one another. If it's the first time introduction of any crew member to your crew, there's a, a period of time where they have to prove themselves, you know? Yep. You have to build that trust. So again, and that's that's just human nature. Right. Right. And so again, I think that's why it's not really discussed a lot because you don't want to add more, (laughs) more things to overcome than already comes with being a new crew member or being new to the, to the engine. Mm -hmm. Well, Hey, thanks for touching on that. I'm trying to get more of those conversations going and hopefully, you know, people hearing this, there'll be more, willing to have those conversations publicly because I think it is important. Yeah, me too. Uh, and I think the more that folks are open um, to seeing the other side, I think uh, the more positive these conversations go, the more conversations will be had. So thanks for opening that up. Absolutely. Hey, so we've been at this for like an hour and 45 minutes. Do you have any final words going into the 2020 fire season? Are there expectations you have for this year or just words of advice for folks going into this fire season? Man, I'm just hoping everybody has a solid and safe season. Um, it's 
it's just one of those things that I know you've touched on over the past couple of podcasts about whether or not fire season is extending or if, uh, you know, we call it fire year now, Mm -hmm. but, um, even if you're not on a roll, there's that emotional and mental exhaustion and transition period. And so it feels like it extends even past your fire assignment time. So really just taking this time to, um, refuel, rest and recover, um, and everybody have a safe one this year. Love it. Well, hey, stay on the line after we after we go here. But good luck on the marathon coming up. I know that's Thank you. that's no easy feat. So good luck with that. Thanks for coming on. For everybody out there, go check it out. Ten and eighteen. You can find it on all the socials: YouTube, Instagram. Um, I'm sure you'll have more coming. But what you've put out, I found valuable. So I suggest people go and check that out as well. Hey, thank Jay, you. thank you for coming on and uh, appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Yeah.